Good morning again. We are in a series entitled Identity. And this is our fourth weekend, so we've been in it for a little bit now. And uh, I thought I would, we're at about the right space to recount a little bit of where we've been. There's been some positive goals in, in the message. Uh, I, so I, it's been my heart not just to leave you with stop doing that, but to just rethink how is it that we're doing the things we're doing. And uh, in the very first week that we began to talk, we grappled with the reality that the medium shapes us. The medium uh, has its own power of alteration, that the social normality of the iPhone or the digital age, uh, that that is culturally shaping and it is altering how we view relationships, how we view space and time, how we view uh, the limitations of our own personhood. And we, and we pointed out on that morning that uh, while nothing is a thing is neither good or bad, it's a thing, uh, life is lived with a certain tendency, right? We're part of the fall. And so things have a tendency of uh, pulling us down if we're not aware. And the positive goal of that week was to, for us to sort of awaken to it. There's a sort of numbness when something new comes out, just to like to reach our arms around it and embrace it and, and just keep moving on. But it was to, to awaken to that. That was week one. Week two was to kind of cast an eye on our me, the me-centered nature of the digital age and the smartphone, how we use our phones to shield ourselves in public, so to be alone in public. And we use our phones to shield ourselves from being alone when we're in private. How we, we are enjoying our ability to reshape our setting with our phone. And how in a lot of ways our, our nature is to prefer shallow, frictionless, fake relationships over uh, deep, difficult, rich relationships in the real. It was a call. The positive call from week two was to choose to live where we are, to accept the reality you're in, stare at it, and deal with it, what's in front of us, uh, as Christ did. Last week, we talked about idolatry, the sort of the tells of idolatry, the basic, basic path of idolatry, not because the only idol around us is our, our phone, but because our phone makes idolatry so easy. There's so many things we can do on our phones so quickly, almost anywhere. So we talked about some of the basic Elements of idolatry, our tendency to externalize a problem. So instead of encountering a hard problem, a problem between us and the Lord, we have a tendency as people to extract that problem and place the blame on something outside of us. Our life is the way it is because of that thing. And when we externalize the problem, then we look to something else created as the hope. And that is sort of... That's the groundwork for idolatry, is looking in things made to solve problems that are outside of us. And when we do that, the costs are almost always hidden. And 
And in a way, like in a similar way that we were called to awaken to the medium of the digital age, there was a call last week just to be aware of our idolatrous tendencies. Where are those places that we have a tendency of, have allowed a root of bitterness to come out on this, whether it's this job or this friend or this relationship is why I'm not happy. And and to begin to encounter those in, in maybe a deeper, more internal way. That's where we've been. That's where we've been. And this morning uh, is hopefully going to be a, a little more practical. So we've kind of hit deep, and now we're coming out a little more practical. And it's on the subject of um, distraction. How the digital age is an age of distraction. And the positive goal of this morning is to begin to try to choose to live the undistracted life, at least to take steps towards that. So um, I want to offer you, there's a book here I have. Uh, well, I'll show you this one in a second. Here's another book I have. I've been doing a lot of reading lately. Um, the gentleman, the author here is Neil Postman. He wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and he published it in 1985 which the published date is a year after uh, the title of a very important book called 1984. And Neil Postman begins his book in 1985 reflecting on the fact that it's the year after 1984. And 1984 was written by an author named Orwell, and he, 1984 describes a society, a, what you might call a communist or authoritarian society. That's ruled by oppression. It's ruled by like squishing the individual down, uh, stealing education, pulling books away. Uh, the phrase "Big Brother," if you've ever heard that phrase, comes from his book. This sort of this omnipotent eye watching you, making sure you don't mess up. And Postman begins uh, his book reflecting a little bit on on that book. Um, he says that's sort of what everybody thought leading up throughout the Cold War, right? This was very popular throughout the Cold War. We all thought that's where society is going. And he says, well, maybe not so fast. Now that we're beyond 1984 and it hasn't happened to us, maybe we have a different challenge. And he talks about this book. This book is called Brave New World. And it's by an author named Aldous Huxley. And it was written in 1932. So just as I, as I read a little bit, take note that this was written a long time ago. So um, here's what he says. Speaking of this book, he says, there was another slightly older, slightly less well-known, and equally chilling book, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And it, just allow me to read a little bit. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. 
What Orwell feared was that those who, those who would ban books, what Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. This is 1932. Orwell feared the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture. Later on in life, uh, Huxley uh, wrote again that people failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. Distraction. I watched a TED Talk uh, preparation for this about a guy who was talking about how technology can help us from being distracted, which I found ironic. But in that talk, he says, distraction, the studies show that distraction typically causes a 23-minute loop. When you're doing work and you get one of those side shot emails or texts like, hey, can you real quick just do that? Professionals say that that kicks off what can be a 23-minute circle to get back to where you were. That's the nature of distraction. So let's talk about this. Um, every, every new innovation has a proponent and has opponents, right? And people who are for it, proponents, they love to talk about, they talk about things it can do in certain ways. So a proponent will say that we use smartphones because of their versatility, because of their usefulness, and because of their portability. And it's true. On this thing, is not just a phone. Why we even call it a smartphone, I don't know, because I almost, I rarely use it as a phone. Not only is there a phone on here, there's a very good camera, as well as all of my photo albums. There's also a pretty good audio player, in addition to my entire library of music on this thing. I also have email on this. I have my calendar on this. I have my to-do list on this. I have every map on the earth on this. And a GPS blue dot to tell me where I am. And someone to coach me from one place to another. And that comes standard on this little thing. That's amazing. It is amazing. And then there's the old phrase, there's an app for that. So after standard is the entire like appology of this device where we can begin to customize and build numerous sort of abilities that come off this phone. And a word rises out of this. The word is it helps us to multitask. That's what the proponent would say. The proponent of the iPhone would say it helps us to multitask. Opponent would say, there's another word for that, and that word is distraction. If it helps you multitask, it makes you distractible. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to look at three uh, different sections of Scripture. 
and they're going to be on the screen. They're all in the New Testament. And um, in fact, you can turn to Matthew 13 if you want right now. And uh, they're familiar, they're generally familiar sections of Scripture. So I'm not going to delve into the whole text. I'm using these passages as opportunities to sort of, as prisms, to stare at distraction and help us think about the digital age. So the first principle that I want to put in front of you, actually, is that distraction may lead to our destruction. Okay, distraction may lead to our destruction. And, and uh, let me get there. I'm not even there yet. There is a parable in the Gospels. It's the parable of the sower. Jesus uh, tells this parable. It's a fairly long parable. And in it, he says there's a farmer. He casts seed. It lands on the, on the pathway. It lands on rocky ground. It lands in thorny ground. And it lands in good soil. And he goes on to explain it. It's one of the few times Jesus explains his parable. He says the seeds are the gospel falling sort of into the soil of of the people. And so the pathway or people who reject the gospel, uh, the stony ground is a certain kind of person. Uh, but the person that I want us to look at is in the 22nd verse. And it says this, as for what was sown among thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That's, that's enough. The first point I just want to draw is that distraction may, in fact, lead to our destruction. You see, for me, when I hear the word distraction, I think of something nuisance. It's a nuisance topic to me. It's like a bug flying around. That's a distraction for me. But Jesus points to, there's not that many categories of human he uses in this parable. The person who doesn't want to have anything to do to God, the person who uh, suffers and walks away from God or, or withers beneath hardship, and the person who is distracted from the hope of Jesus, and then the good person. So there's four Four categories in this parable. And distracted is one of them. Someone who's captivated by the external, they're distracted from the hope of God by these external cares. And it leads them towards unfruitfulness, which in this parable is not a minor thing. In this parable, like with a farmer, they only keep that which bears fruit. In other words, distraction may seem to us to be a nuisance minor idea, but it may in fact be a tidal force of the enemy vying for your soul. Just because the enemy, you know, attacks you in a thousand little ways doesn't mean they don't add up. He, the enemy may be vying for you through distraction. At any rate, it's deeply spiritual. I think if we begin to uh, uh, look at our lives of distraction in a, through the lens of this is a spiritual question, uh, we can learn. Here's some examples. 
social media or games or, or just about anything uh, that we play on these things has a way of inviting us back continually. You notice that? Uh, you have runs where you will, you'll get extra points if you keep logging on every day. Candy Crush. It's my, it's my go-to. It's my lady. <laughs> Candy Crush awards me. It awards me if I go back day after day. There were days this summer, and oddly enough in preparation for this series, I got up to 85 days in a row that I had gone to Candy Crush. But many of those days, I did not even play it that much. I just went on to make sure I could keep the run going. Log on, turn off. <sighs> Can't wait to see what I get on day 83. <laughs> it's calling you back. Same, same with on Facebook, you'll get a, hey, your picture was tagged by somebody. You get notified. Oh, my picture got tagged? Like, what do I, I imagine... This is, this is not me, but I imagine, because I'm not on Facebook, but I imagine if, if I was on Facebook and my picture got tagged, I would say, what picture was that? Why did it get tagged? Who posted it? Is it my good side or my bad side? Do I look fat or slim? What was I wearing? I have to go check it right now, and the 23-minute loop would go. Because where would I go? I would go on Facebook. Which, by the way, so sort of the cares of this world and the desires for deceitful gain merge. Because Facebook wants you to get on, not because they want you to see your picture. Facebook is being propelled, this is, Facebook's just an example, by all the ads on the columns. Where they're fanning your desire for deceitful gain. Which, by the way, have been highly tailored. They know what you look at, when you look at, what you buy, how you buy, how you pay, when you do buy. They know all of those things, and they're, they are fine-tuning what you see so that you actually do pull the trigger. Another example, breaking news. All the time, breaking news. Breaking news, it's Sunday. I mean, everything is breaking news. And the news doesn't even care what news is. It just needs to be breaking. The news is happy. I think they're happy with the excitement of hurricanes. And I think they're just as quick to leave the subject of a hurricane. Where people are suffering and dying, now they're on to the politics of the hurricane. Because that's the breaking news. They, they do not care about what's important. They are entertaining you to death. And if you're not careful, your phone pushes this information to you. Oh, more breaking news. I turn that off on my phone. Distraction may be a path to our soul destruction. By it fanning in us anxieties and cares for things that are not at the center of who God is or where your day is. Why? Why? What is the fruitfulness of fanning anxiety in us about a hurricane way over there? What's the gain for that? Concern for those loved ones? Absolutely. But hours and hours of images... What is the good from that? 
I think it is creating a people that are mated to images, addicted to sensation, and that their cares are applied into these things. It's just very practically. I'm gonna. I'm trying to offer some practical. What would you do? I I would recommend considering what can push notifications on your phone. Which how many of those push notifications do you need to have? Which ones are that really that important? Consider maybe turning some of those off. For those of you who don't know, push notifications. I think I have it right. Am I saying it right? Are the ones that just decide to tell you what they think is important. So by the way, you you want to come back? That's all it's really doing. So you want to come back? You want to check me out? You want to come back? That's the device. How about you turn the, the news one off and just say, when you want to go to the news, you go to the news. Or even some of the, the other ones. Just, it's a thought. To pick your time and place that you participate in these things. There is a cost to that. There's actually a word for it, FOMO, F-O-M-O. Have you heard this? Fear of missing out. It's a real thing. People are talking about it now, FOMO. It's on the way to the dictionary, FOMO, fear of missing out. That we have become, we have become a culture that is addicted to being in the know. We are immersed in the trivial in to know, in the know. And so we fear that if we are disconnected for any length of time, the world will pass us by. And the cost, the cost of leaving some of that behind, of not letting it push, is that you will no longer be in the know of things that don't matter. Here's a second thought about distraction. It's a a little bit deeper. And is distraction can be the result of too many good options. It's the second thing I want us to look at. Distraction can be the result of too many good options. Look at Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 38. Can you read that on the screen? Is that readable? This is what it says. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Certainly Martha believed she was doing a good thing. In fact, she was quite convinced she was, she was doing the best thing. And to know what is the best thing of all the things we can do, that is its own challenge. It may be difficult, but in our digital age, we live in the land where we can do just about any good thing at any moment. So there's always in your pocket or in your purse or in your hand the opportunity to do another good thing wherever you are. And we see this all the time. By the way, I should say this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bust on the Bible app in a second. But 
Bible app has increased Bible readership categorically. They have, they've studied it and they find people with Bible apps read their Bibles more faithfully because it's with them. So it's the, I'm not trying to get us to not use this. <laughs> We're trying to get this to become a tool. But how often have you been trying to do something somewhat sacred, like read your Bible app, and then a reminder or an email slides over or drops down just to say, hey, can you just take care of this one little other good thing real quick while you're at it? And you're thinking, oh, man, I meant to get that one little other good thing done. And so you, 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 and you, want, to, you want to hit it before it disappears on the screen because if it doesn't, then you have to do the thumb and go find the app. And so it's this race to hit the top of your screen and you get there and you're brought, you're now, now you're over in the text world and you're just texting, yeah, I'm going to send that thing to you right away. And then now you're, you're doing a good thing, by the way. You've, you're exchanging one good thing for the other. Now you're emailing somebody, you're meeting their needs because, listen, meeting people's needs is important. And, and so you're, you're taking that, and then your next thing you know, you're doing that, and it turns out you got like one half of a verse read on your app, even though that's the whole reason you went there. Or as maybe even a more common scenario is you're, sitting at a ta- you're out with a friend, you're sitting at a table, phone's on the table, it lights up or it buzzes all over the place. The whole table shakes, right? Or if you're slightly older, you have the volume all the way up <laughs> so that the whole people in the restaurant duck because they think it's an alarm going off. Um, either way, you know, it's it, it there. And now you're in this crisis. Which ones of these good things do I do, right? What is the best thing? It's hard to answer what is the best thing, uh, especially from, you know, from those details. We can't know. Maybe you do need to answer that phone. But there are ways that we can structure our life just very practically. Um, if, if you're not waiting for the call, put your phone on airplane mode. Leave it in the car. I now am trying to foster a habit of putting my phone in my book bag, setting it down so that it, I can't feel it move. Because if I, if, if I, it'd be one thing if my wife was in labor. It's another thing when nothing's happening, and I'm, but I still need the security blanket just in case there's another good thing that I may be called to do. So I separate it from me. I separate it from my entire person, and I put it in a, in a book bag. At least I'm trying to. Do not disturb. I think the latest iOS that just came out, incidentally, for iPhone has a very sophisticated do not disturb to help you, to sort of remove that. I have found when someone comes to meet with me and they say to me, um, hey, just so you know, my car's in the shop and I'm expecting a call anytime right now, so I will have to take that. I find I appreciate that. That actually takes care of me when someone says that to me. Like, like I really want to be with you, but there is, we do live in a world where we're fully accessible. And so I just want you to know there is this category that, that is a way to, I, I, for me, I have appreciated it when it's been said to me, and I try to say it to others. 
There is a friend of mine whose family has adopted, when they are on vacation, the policy of single-use devices. This is really interesting and fascinating to me. They were being driven crazy by the fact that because their phone is a camera, they have it with them. So they're out on the beach with their camera. But the problem is, is now this camera talks to you all the time. It buzzes and shakes and whistles and beeps with all this information. So now they've decided when they're on vacation, they leave their smartphones in the, in the house and they bring a camera or they bring an iPod for music or they use a phone. I don't know if they do that. I can't even think if any of those exist anymore. But their big points were separating themselves from the camera. When they go skiing, they go on the slopes. They do not bring their phone. They bring their camera. And I found that as a, a very proactive step towards saying, this is the best thing. What we're doing now is the best thing. And we're going to honor that space. We've worked hard to be here. We've set things up. We've made appointments. This time together is a good thing. And this is where God's called us for. Okay. One other, one other space. And this may be the most... Uh, Difficult to draw out. It's in Mark. Mark chapter 11. It's actually in most of the Gospels. I would title this, Distraction Can Steal Meaningful Time on the Way to God. It can steal meaningful time on the way to God. Mark eleven fifteen says this, And they came to Jerusalem, this is speaking of Jesus, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking of a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. I just want to paint the picture for you a little bit, because for one, the subject of distraction, in trying to think of distraction, this narrative is the one that has been in my heart the most, even though it's the least obviously connected. And the picture is, there's the temple, and then there's the court, and then there's the court of the Gentiles, which at the time of Christ was like a 35-acre, very wide open space. And he's ascending to the temple, and he goes into the temple grounds, presumably one of these courts, probably the court of the Gentiles. And in fact, he says, my house of prayer for all the nations, which might even be of a richer context in the court of the Gentiles. But he's in this wide open court where there's all this commerce happening. Now, it's pseudo-religious commerce. It's people exchanging Roman currency for kosher sorts of offerings and this sort of thing. But you can just imagine. Imagine a space that was supposed to be a quiet space for pilgrims to come, to kneel in silence before the Lord. Now it's get your pigeons. It's noisy with commerce and the sounds. And what Jesus looks at is, is, the space, right, 
they might say, well, it's not technically the temple. The temple's there. He would say, you've obliterated the space to approach God. How? Where, is the, where is this margin for contemplation? In your life, where is it? We Americans are so episodic. This is the beginning, this is the end. That's not how it's always been. The, the, the watch did this to us. This is the beginning and this is the end, right? That's, that's the watch working in reverse. It's an episode. Worship service starts at this time and ends at this time. This is, the, this is where the building starts. And this is, where is this, where's the sense of like pilgrimaging to the Lord, of, of si- mon- seizing quiet time on the way to God so that when we get here, when we get to the Lord, now we are already richly immersed. The Psalms, many of the Psalms you read are Psalms of Ascent. Psalms where people are ascending as they are ascending towards the Temple Mount. Can you imagine that being done really well and getting to the Temple Mount and seeing the marketplace? I have a phrase that goes through my head, which is my, my phone helps me kill time. You know what? Because I'm episodic, because on my calendar, my calendar defines the, the meeting times, it doesn't care about the spaces in the middle. It acts as though those are purposeless. When to the Lord, they could be rich. But all along the way, For me, I'm tempted to kill time. When I think the Lord would say, we never kill time, we redeem it. Plus, there's passages like this. This is Deuteronomy 6. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Speaking of the laws of God, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We have been offered a substitute for filling up the court, <laughs> for creating lights and noises and a marketplace environment in the very places that God wished he could use with you for the rich contemplation of who he is. Because it's so important we remember who he is. And not the first Sunday of every even month. But we daily remember. We should be a people who uh, redeem the time. And in this setting, I am now starting, just to think of, of ways to offer you, I'm now starting to choose, to consciously choose. When I drive from this leg to that leg, I will do it in silence. And when I have this space, I will begin with prayer. I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to play my game or whatever, and, and maybe I'll pray. I'm going to begin with prayer. And when I have a peace about having gone through the names that are in my mind or the families that are in my mind or the needs that are on my heart or whatever it is, when I'm at the resolution of that, then like, I'm not fully arrived. Then I, I still sort of 
kill time. I'm not, justif- I'm not using myself to justify it before you. I'm saying better today than I was yesterday because I'm seeing the spaces on the way to the temple as meaningful, as meaningful spaces that allow me to contemplate him. Where do you pray? I want this to be on our heart as we come to the Lord's table. I want us to be joyfully reminded of what he's done for us. I want this to be a signature to the fact that we are not perfect. And we are being progressively redeemed. We have been saved and now we are being sanctified. And we should be reminded of that. And so we don't come here because we have it all figured out or because we're all fixed or because we've done everything right. In fact, I think we need to remember this because we're not. So as we pray and as we prepare for what uh, to share in this, uh, let's begin with a prayer. And that's just with your heads bowed. Just take a second to... Think about the ways maybe that distraction has taken hold. Is it too much TV? Is it surfing the internet? Is it is it talk radio? Is it Lord, we acknowledge before you that there is a way that destruction can be the path of destruction for us. These distractions, Lord. And so we come to you confessing, Lord, particularly in the confidence of the table of your body and your blood. We come to you free to confess, reminded to confess, Lord. And Lord, some here may may have, may actually be in danger of walking away from the hope of Christ because of the cares of this world or sinful desires for gain. And so, Lord, I pray in this moment they'd hear you call them home. Not be chased off by your table, but called back by it. And Lord, we recognize that distractions, we can be distracted from the things you really want us to do by other lesser good things. And we are all victims of that. We've experienced it and and see it. And help us there, Lord. Help us to be mindful about the way we approach the things we are doing. And Lord, I, I think deepest of all is the way that we have grown accustomed to always having noise and lights and sounds and images and voices talking.
there is a solitude with you, Lord, that you'd long for us. And, and I, pray, I pray that for our fellowship. I think of the walk to Emmaus that those two men had where you met them, Lord. I think, when have I walked four miles in conversation about you? Lord, how can we meet you if we're not on those walks? We remember that you met those men there, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would be redeemers of the time because it is with purpose that you've placed us here. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.